Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. One season does not make a Hall of Fame career. But this pitcher, I think, has or had a case to be inducted into baseball's Hall of Fame. After all, he went 27-8 and with a 1.93 ERA in 1923. He won 194 games over a 20-year career more than some of his fellow pitchers who have been enshrined in Cooperstown. And his contributions as a coach in the majors and a manager in places like Cuba are immeasurable. Yet, when you mention his name, few can tell you anything about him. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to explore the outstanding career of a man who put together one of baseball's greatest seasons, Dolph Luque. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of Sports Forgotten Heroes and our first episode of the new baseball season. We have several terrific topics on the way for you this baseball season, and we're excited to be working on all of them. Today... The story of Dolph Luque. Now, some of you might recall that we have talked a little bit about Dolph previously. You see, Dolph turned around the career of Sal the Barber Magley. And when we did an edition of Sports Forgotten Heroes about the Barber, we discussed how Luque helped turn Magley's career around. And we did it with baseball historian, writer, and researcher Peter Gordon. And once again, Peter is here. Only this time, instead of talking about Magley, he's here to talk about the forgotten career of Dolph Luque. Of course, before we get to today's show, just a little housekeeping. You can learn more about our guests and the forgotten stars we talk about by visiting our website, sportsfh.com. There we have links to more information like stats, bios, and clips for guys like Dolph Luque links to the books that our guests have written, a calendar for upcoming shows, easy access archive to all of our past episodes, and links so you can send us questions, comments, or even suggest forgotten heroes of your own whom you'd like us to do a show on. Don't forget you can follow Sports Forgotten Heroes every day on Twitter, at SportsFHeroes, or look for our page on Facebook, And please, keep those five-star ratings coming. And don't forget to tell your friends and family about Sports Forgotten Heroes. They just might like what you're listening to as well. There is really never a perfect explanation as to why the careers of 
Some are remembered and others aren't, no matter how good or marginal their careers were. Sometimes a player from a sport we love had one shining moment that goes down in infamy, and they're remembered forever. Other stars just don't get their due recognition for a myriad of reasons, and one such star might be our subject today, Dolph Luque. Now, playing for the Cincinnati Reds in the 20s and 30s and the fact that he came to the U.S. without much fanfare from Cuba doesn't help. But when you consider the long history of the Reds and the pitchers who have suited up for them like Jim Maloney, Joe Nuxhall, Mario Soto, Don Gullett, Jack Billingham, and Johnny Vandermeer, that none of them won more games for the Reds than Luque did, or that Luque is the fifth winningest pitcher in Reds history, that's sort of strange, don't you think? Luque won 154 games for Cincy. Only guys like Bucky Walters, Paul Derringer, and Epa Rixie won more. Maybe, as a sidebar, it's even more mind-boggling that no one to wear a Reds uniform ever won as many as 180 games playing for them. Nonetheless, Luque had a wonderful career. He actually played on the Miracle Boston Braves team of 1914, spent 12 years with the Reds, four with the New York Giants, and two with the Brooklyn Dodgers. His 194 career wins are more than several Hall of Fame pitchers, and for the longest period of time, he had more wins than any other pitcher from a Latin American country. Yet, Luque is one of those guys whose career is well, forgotten. No one ever talks about the guy. Heck, even in a history book about the Reds, Luque isn't even mentioned. This, despite the fact that 1923, he put together one of the greatest seasons ever for a pitcher, going 27-8 and with a 1.93 ERA. 28 complete games and six shutouts. At the age of 42, he went 8 and 2 and finished with MVP votes. That was for the Brooklyn Dodgers. As a coach and manager, as we mentioned earlier, he turned around the careers of many and helped make stars out of marginal players. So, why is Dolph Luque one of those guys who has been forgotten? Well, joining us now on Sports Forgotten Heroes to try and answer that question and to talk more about the terrific career of Dolph Luque is baseball historian, writer, and researcher, Peter Gore. Peter, welcome back to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you decided to join us once again. Well, I'm glad to be back. I always love talking about baseball players. Awesome. So, Peter, you and I had a wonderful discussion on Sports Forgotten Heroes, episode number 35, about Sal the Barber Magley. And one name that came up a few times was Dolph Luque. Now, Dolph is, without question, at least in my mind, a forgotten hero. He really is. I mean, after all, if you were to go out and talk to, I don't know, 100 baseball fans, I highly doubt 90% of them, maybe even more, would say they know who he is, despite the fact 
that Dolph won 194 games during his 20-year career. That included one of the greatest seasons ever, really, by a pitcher when he won 27 games for the Cincinnati Reds in 1923. So, Peter, who was Dolph Luque and why does he deserve more recognition than he has received? Dolph Luque was the first Latino-born, he was actually Cuban, ball player to make a significant mark in the major leagues. Now, that might be not an unusual thing for fans today to realize because there are so many Latino ball players from the Dominican Republic, from Cuba even today, and of course all of the Latin American countries. But when Dolph was playing Major League Baseball from the late teens through the 1930s, he was really the only one. I mean, there were some that, that had a, a couple of small parts, but he was a star. I mean, you could say that he paved the way for all of the Latino ballplayers that followed him. Interesting. So he, he comes to us or comes to the majors from Cuba, is like you said. Can you talk about baseball in Cuba back when Dolph was first learning the game? I mean, what was the game like back in the early 1900s? And do you have any information on Dolph's learning the game in Cuba? I have a little bit of information. Uh, this, let's just start with the Cuban Winter League, which essentially has been playing baseball in Cuba, or had been, starting in the 1870s. Uh, the folks in Cuba landed from Americans, and really right around uh, the time that the National League was first getting launched in the United States, Cuba had professional baseball. And in the, and it, was, it worked out really well, because the Winter League would start after the baseball season, so it started in November, sometimes December, and it would go until February when the ballplayers had to go to spring training. And it was a very high level of baseball. The other thing to remember is that Cuban baseball was always integrated, or I should say because of the nature of Cuban society, there was never a thought that there'd be separate leagues for black players and white players. So the Cuban league always had some of the best ball players playing in it in the winter that we would think of today as Negro League players, uh, guys like Rube Foster, uh, but also ball players that have been, that are in the Hall of Fame now for their Negro, Negro League service, such as Cristobal Torriente, Martin DeHigo, Oscar Charleston, uh, Biz Mackey, Satchel Page. All of those guys and more played in the Cuban Winter Leagues, and they played against Major League Baseball players, either in exhibitions or in the old guys would be sent down uh, to work on their game in the winter. Hmm. Interesting. Now, you had mentioned the Negro Leagues and the Cuban Leagues. And, of course, here in the States, we had the Major Leagues. And the shame of it all is the fact that the skin pigmentation of many Cubans was dark and Major League Baseball wouldn't allow 
them to play. So how did Dolph Luque manage to cross the color barrier at that time? Well, he was the right color. He was lighter skinned. I uh, think uh, Ricky Ricardo, Desi Arnaz. <laughs> and, uh, I know I use the character, right? I think of Ricky and Lucy. But Desi Arnaz, for example, is a Cuban who didn't face that sort of discrimination because of his color since he was, he, since he was passed as light-skinned. Light, light and, and Dolph Luque was a light-skinned Cuban. Uh, right enough for the major leagues. Uh, what he was, he was on the right side of the color line, I guess. Although he was referred to as swarthy, hmm. and and also it, it would not be surprising if there were Cuban ball players who did play in the majors that were even darker than him. It, it's it is a terrible stain on American history and on baseball that baseball hmm. teams were segregated for as long as they were. Uh, but that was the way it was. Dolph Luque was able to play. And since he was a solid major leaguer for years, certainly the guys he played against who were banned from the major leagues on account of their color could certainly have played. They had the talent to play. You know what's really interesting is that um, Jackie Robinson – obviously is considered the first man to break the color barrier and he's so celebrated i mean the guy was just a phenomenal athlete a phenomenal baseball talent and surely that i don't think he would be in the hall of fame strictly because he broke the color barrier but that is part of the reason why he is in the hall of fame for all that he did breaking that color line. Dolph Luque was the first, as you said, Latino or the first Cuban to play in the major leagues. And my gosh, 194 wins. So again, I ask, why do you think he does not get that same kind of recognition as a guy like Jackie Robinson? Well, two reasons. One is that Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in the major leagues. There was no barrier to Dolph Luque because he was Latino. He didn't break the color barrier. He was the right color. He was just from Cuba. There were other Cuban players who have played in America. Um, in fact, one of the first uh, played in the late 1860s, early 1870s. Uh, Esteban Bilan uh, played, for, played for the Troy Haymakers. Uh, back really before the professional leagues were organized and later managed in Cuba. Hmm. So there, there was no barrier to break. And the other reason is, while Luque played for some really amazing teams, his greatest seasons were for the Cincinnati Reds in the 1920s when the Reds were a good team, but they weren't winning pennants. And... Yeah, his, his great year in 1923 was maybe the greatest pitching performance between World War One and World War Two. It's certainly one of the top two or three. Uh, it's considered by uh, people who are Cincinnati Reds fans to be perhaps the greatest single-season performance of any Reds pitcher. Mm -hmm. But it was a third-or-fourth-place team. 
if if they speak about it, and we'll get to that later. I mean, there have been sure. uh, there's been a lot written about the Reds, and for some reason, that twenty seven and eight season that he had in nineteen twenty three is not referred to as often as you might think it is. Why did Dolph leave Cuba for the states? Was it strictly for baseball? If so, how was he discovered? Well, it, it was exactly for baseball uh, because. Yeah, it's funny for a guy who played, who spent so much time in baseball. There's not a lot known about his young years. I, I think he may have deliberately not told people. Mm-hmm. He really he grew up in a working class neighborhood in Havana. Everybody knows that, but he didn't really begin to surface in the baseball story till he was in the Cuban artillery, where he learned how to play baseball and and got pretty good at it. And there was a. Uh, and he started, he started playing professionally in, in Cuba in the early teens. Mm-hmm. And, and there was a Cuban doctor who lived in Long Branch, New Jersey. Uh, Jersey Shore, not actually that far from where Bruce Springsteen grew up. <laughs> Long Branch, just you know, for those of you who want to know where it is geographically. And he recruited Cuban baseball players. Hmm. So he brought, he brought Dolph to play for the Long Branch Cubans. Mm-hmm. To uh, mm-hmm. to pitch for them, it, I want to say 1912, but it was certainly around then. And the team had two things going for it. One is it, it was a pro team in New Jersey, so it wasn't that far from several major league cities. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is they could play on Sunday at a time when major league baseball didn't play on Sunday. Right. So. Right. So what, they, didn't what happened, play, they didn't play in New York. I thought I thought perhaps they didn't play in New York on Sunday. Or in Philadelphia. Okay, okay. Yeah, because uh, they were there were blue laws back then. There were right. some places you could play on Sunday. Right. But George Stallings, the the legendary George Stallings, who is manager, became manager of the of the 1914 Braves. Right, I have this all written out here. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, he was the, became manager of the Miracle Braves. I did a, a biography of Josh DeVore, one of the players of the on that team, so I know something about it. He, on a Sunday, he happened to see Luke A. Pitch, so he recruited him for the Braves. And, and Dolph, yeah. Dolph maybe... Yeah, he had, a, he had a terrific season for Long Branch. He was like... Uh, 22 and five. And yes, it, it was in what they called the New Jersey, New York state league, which I guess is something similar to single a ball. And mm-hmm. I guess Dolph really impressed a bunch of people. Most notably though, he impressed Stallings and Stallings was the manager of the Boston Braves. And it wasn't long before Luke was pitching for the Braves. In fact, I think he pitched for the Braves during their miracle year of 1914, even just briefly. Yeah, it was. He pitched one game. He lost it. Well, actually, he pitched two games, but but he lost one game and um, had a high ERA and pretty much, you know, Stallings was had his staff and they were fighting for the pennant. And Luque basically rode the bench and then went went back to Long Branch, which is interesting because he had he pitched just a little bit better or had Stallings given him more of a chance, he might have been a big contributor to that team. 
which would have made his legend even bigger. Sure, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I find it really interesting that he was that Stallings was so impressed by Luke K, brings him up to the Braves, who, you know, what a year. I mean, nineteen fourteen, they were last, they were they were left for dead and they come all the way back somehow and win the World Series, but that's a story for another time, Peter. But what I find interesting is he gave up on him so quickly. I know. Nobody, well, nobody's perfect, right? Stallings did do he did a lot of things right that year, but not pitching Luke Moore was probably not one of them. By the same token, he had the he could see that there was something there and picked him up, and maybe that experience with the Braves helped him when he finally did get his real chance a couple of years later with Cincinnati. Sure. Sure. Speaking of what Stallings saw in Luque, tell us what he saw in Luque. What kind of pitcher was Dolph Luque? Tell us about his game. He was a power pitcher. He he's only five seven, but actually back then five seven wasn't that wasn't that small in baseball. And now we got six six pitchers. But uh, you know that was back when Christy Matthewson was six feet tall. Was considered a really big guy. Mm-hmm. So. Dolph Luque was 5'7", stocky. He had two pitches. He had a fastball and a curve. He was not afraid, eager, in fact, to throw inside the batters when he needed to. Mm -hmm. And he would throw, and so he was a master at using the inside fastball to set up the outside curve. I actually have a quote. Uh, not not from me, but from a guy who saw him pitch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, he, Al Lopez, the great manager, also a Latino, he was a catcher, he's in the Hall of Fame for as a manager with the White Sox and the Indians. Mm-hmm. And he said that um, Luque pitched overhand and the curveball broke straight down as a drop pitch. And so he was sometimes even more, he was a righty, but he was more effective against lefties than righties because of the way his ball moved. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. And one other thing about Dolph is, and this could have affected his recognition as well, and that's he had a very fiery temper. And on one occasion, he had had enough of the razzing that the New York Giants were giving him while he was pitching for the Reds. He placed his glove on the ground, turned, and charged the Giants' dugout to take on one of their players, and a guy by the name of Casey Stengel got caught in the middle, and Dolph purportedly leveled Casey. Can you talk about Dolph's temper and that incident? Yeah, it's... You hear a lot of different things from people because certainly the stereotype in a time when America stereotyped everybody was Latinos were fiery. And on the one hand, you're talking about a guy who pitched 20 years in the major leagues, then later had an exemplary career as a coach and a manager. He must have been able to control himself at some point, but he was well known to fly off the handle. And in that particular case, it was the summer in Cincinnati uh, the story goes that there was some construction in the ballpark in what they called Reds Park then, so that 
in those days, it wasn't nearly as regimented as today. So they just put the benches out in foul territory while they were working on the dugout, which meant that it was a lot easier to hear what people said. Mm-hmm. And, and there was a, a right fielder for the Giants named Bill Cunningham, who was really getting on Luque. And of course, they would always insult him as a Latino player. And that day he could hear him really well and he just had enough. And that's exactly what he did again, showing temper over, over sense. He charged the bench, but he wasn't actually aiming at Stengel. The story goes, and I believe that too. He was, he was aiming to hit Cunningham, but Cunningham ducked and he hit Stengel in the, <laughs> in the chin and knocked him over. <laughs> but- and it, it then the benches cleared and there was a big brawl and they, they had to, cops had to escort Luque out of the, out of the stadium. Is that incident or does that incident still have a stain on Luque? I mean, how devastating was it? And is it something that he can overcome even in death? I mean, a guy like Juan Marichal overcame his incident with Johnny Roseborough um, is it something that can ever be overlooked, um, or is Luke's, uh recognition forever stained and he'll never be spoken of as a great pitcher or as a or as great a pitcher as he was? He'll never be given the kind of recognition he possibly deserves. I don't think that incident is a problem for his reputation and legacy. If anything, it gives him a little more color, so to speak. You know, at least Doc Luque, fiery temper. So you have a handle. He's not anonymous. And uh, like you said, Marichal overcame that incident with Roseboro, and that was a lot worse. Luque put down his glove and went at him with his fists. He didn't attack anybody with a bat like Marichal did. exactly. I think if there's a reason why Luque is not as well-known today or not as revered, it's because of the way he split his achievements between U.S. Major League Baseball and all the Latino professional leagues. Mm-hmm. It, you know, if you add up all of his wins between, that we can count between Major League Baseball and Cuban Baseball, you have a total up in the 280s. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty impressive. That's, you know, Satchel Page territory. Sure. If you add up all of Satchel's wins. But but still, that's- Peter, it's, it, it's, it's really interesting that even in Cincinnati Reds lore, he is not remembered or spoken about in the way that some of his brethren, some of his fellow ball players. Uh, who who played at the same time as he did are spoken about. In fact, in um, I read about this book by John Baskin called The Cincinnati Game, which is a pictorial history of the Cincinnati Reds. And Baskin never even mentions Luque, this despite the fact that in 1923 he led the National League with a 27 and 8 record, a 1.93 ERA and 6 shutouts. I mean, it's one of the greatest seasons ever by a Reds pitcher and in a book that is devoted to the history of the team. Luke 
isn't even mentioned. That's a head-scratcher. Yeah, I don't get that. If I was writing about the Reds, I would want to write about Luque in those years. By the way, a couple of other interesting facts about that year. He led the league in shutouts with six, and his ERA that year, the 1.93 ERA, was the lowest ERA by a Latin pitcher until Louis Tiant in 1968, which was the year of the pitcher. Um, that year is even, Luque's year, 1923, is even better in the context of what was going on because that was the first years of the lively ball and batting averages were up and home runs were up and it, it was a much tougher environment to pitch in. And one of the other amazing stats about that 1923 season I found was this. Dolph Luque actually hit a home run in 1923, but as a pitcher, he threw 322 innings and gave up just two long balls the whole year. I mean, wow, again, wow, two home runs. Uh, What did he do in 1923 to dominate the opposition like he did? Well, I wish I could battle it and give it to some of the pitchers we have pitching today. Yeah, no uh, kidding. Who <laughs> can't complete games? Uh, he was he was very good at learning, very good at setting up hitters, getting them to what we like to call hit pitch, which is hit the ball he wanted to hit. Another interesting thing is that Luque said that he learned his curveball and learned how to set up hitters from Christy Mathewson. Hmm. The great giant pitcher, and it's believable, not just because uh, they were sort of contemporaries, but Matthewson, after he left the Giants, came over and was the manager of the Cincinnati Reds in the teens, but before he went to serve in World War I. Hmm. So it's quite possible that Matthewson could have seen something in Luque and showed him how to save his arm. Uh, Mackieson uh, wrote a, a famous book about pitching called "Pitching Pitching in a Pinch." Hmm. I want to get I want to get that right. And the, the whole his whole pitching philosophy was get him to hit your ball, save your fastball, your best pitchers for when you really need a strikeout. And given the amount of innings Luque pitched over his career between the U.S. and Cuba and Mexico and every place else he pitched, I think he learned how to do that. Now, you, before you said he was a power pitcher who had a, who had a great curveball. But unless mm-hmm. I'm missing something, I went back through his stats, and I didn't see a lot of strikeouts. So was he more of a control pitcher? I mean, what did he do on the mound? It, 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 when, you, when you think about a power pitcher, you usually associate that with a guy who can strike out a lot of batters. But again, he didn't. So explain what you mean by he was a power pitcher or why the strikeouts didn't come along with his power. Well, it, they didn't have batters didn't strike out nearly as much back then as, as they do today. I mean, Babe Ruth struck out a lot. But most batters, they still believed in making contact. So you, in the 20s and teens, you may not see as high a strikeout, as high of a strikeout ratio as you would in other years. He did have a very good, um, he didn't give up a lot of hits, though, either. 
You know, that's why I said mm-hmm. he, he got the pitcher, he got the batters to hit it where he wanted them to hit it. And another thing is, Luque said about himself, and by the way, not easy to find a lot of Dolph Luque quotes in my research. <laughs> but, <laughs> I imagine not. He, he did say, some pitchers with the count three and two will cut loose through the center of the plate. I never do. So he would never give up. He had great control. Mm-hmm. And as a result, when you combine that with mostly throwing fastballs where you can throw it, I consider that a power pitcher mm-hmm. uh, at mm-hmm. least through those days. Oh, another thing about his 1923 season, he was 32 years old. Yeah, sure. He, he got a late start in the majors because he got a late start playing baseball, and then he started out in Cuba. He didn't really start pitching for Cincinnati until 1918 when he was already 27. Yeah, I mean— so and and he pitched for several years after that. I mean, didn't he play for the Giants and a couple of other teams too? Yeah, he pitched till he was forty. He pitched till he was forty-four. So and he was still effective. Right. So so let's let's talk about that for a second because again, you go back to nineteen twenty-three. He goes twenty-seven and eight, um, which by the way was the only time he won twenty games in a season, um, but. Later on, even though he was still effective as a starter, he sort of became like a part-time starter. Why was he not given the opportunity to continue to start, despite the fact that he was really effective? Well, there's there's two reasons. One is the way the game was played back then, but I'll start with the second reason. He had a temper, and managers might have been leery about putting him into certain crucial situations. But the other thing is, back in the late 20s and early 30s, ball clubs played a lot of doubleheaders. They were traveling by train from city to city, mm-hmm. so tra- that took longer. Uh, there weren't as many games on Monday and Tuesday, so pretty much every Sunday was a doubleheader. Mm-hmm. And teams needed what became known as a Sunday pitcher, hmm. a guy that could start on Sundays without messing up the rest of the staff's rotation, Hmm. And that could also be spotted in. And as he got older, he had the smarts. He still had an arm. He still could pitch. That kind of became his role, especially in the in the 30s with the New York Giants. Mm-hmm. I mean, in 1930, when he was 39, he went 14 and 8 for Brooklyn, which was also quite a feat because that was those were not. That wasn't as bad as some Brooklyn Dodger teams yeah, were yeah. in 1932, but it was still pretty bad. And uh, he he still had an ability to pitch. Mm-hmm. Let's go back but, a little bit. Let's go back a little bit sure. since we're talking about all these different teams. His first team was the Boston Braves, as we talked about earlier, and he just didn't make it with the team. He pitched in two games, I think, over two seasons. And I'm guessing after that, he went back to – to, to Long Branch, where in that first year, by the way, he was 22-5 and five for Long Branch. Um, how did he wind up with Cincinnati? Well, it was really, he was upset about it. Again, based on reports from other people, not as much reports from him. But he was upset about that because he was cooling his heels in Long Branch, but he was pitching well in Cuba. And he also played in Mexico. Basically, Luque would go wherever he could get paid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, he was doing this 
in places where other people were scouting him. He wasn't the only person who was pitching in these leagues. Major league players would go down there to pick up extra money in the winter, and they would also play in Mexico. It was the same thing. They were professionals. They played where they could get paid. So what happened was um, not only was he a good pitcher down there, but he, he hit really well. And then he pitched for Louisville in the American, I think that was in the American Association at the time in 1917. And Louisville is very, you know, it's in Kentucky. It's not far from Cincinnati. The Reds scouted him mm-hmm. and they signed him. Mm-hmm. They signed him out of Louisville. He pitched uh, really well. I think in 1918, he went 11-2 or something with a two ERA for Louisville. Mm-hmm. And the Reds picked him up and brought him to their club in 1918. And that's the team that he enjoyed his most success with. I mean, we already touched on that magical 1923 season. Overall with Cincinnati, he pitched 12 years and went 154 and 152. So he was only two games over 500. But um, you sort of can't fault players all the time for all the law lo- pitchers all the time for all the losses. I mean, one year he was 16 and 18, and I think he even got some MVP votes that year. But he did help the Reds to a World Series title in 1919. And um, he appeared in two games and didn't give up a run. And, of course, 1919 was the famous Black Sox series. He was the first Latin American ball player, if my research is right, to appear in a World Series. Talk about his time in Cincinnati and how important a player, how important a pitcher was he for the Cincinnati Reds? What did he mean to that team? Well, even when he was a spot starter and reliever, every team wants somebody that you know is going to come in and know how to get guys out. So he was a very, very valuable part of that team. In 1919, spot starting and relieving, he had a 10-3 and record. He had an ERA of 2.63. He wasn't the main pitcher on that team. In 1919, yes, he was the first Latino pitcher to pitch in the World Series, he didn't give up a run, but what he did was he finished up two Cincinnati losses. Uh, but he, they couldn't have won without him. He, was the, he became, by the early 20s, certainly by 23-24, a mainstay of the staff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one other thing about that 1919 Reds team, mm-hmm. I know, uh, especially if you watch the movie, eight men out. Sure. Everybody keeps talking about how great the White Sox were, and if they hadn't thrown the World Series, they would have won. Right. Uh, that, that Cincinnati team was one of the best National League teams of the teams mm-hmm. in terms of wins. It had Hall of Famers on it. It had Ed Roosh on it. Yeah. Uh, it had great pitchers, and the Reds maintained every single one of them to their dying day that they would have beat the White Sox even if the White Sox were trying. And some people think the only game that was actually thrown was the first game. Hmm. Interesting. So it was a great team. And he was, he was the best pitcher on the team. It's just, unfortunately, uh, the team was, didn't win any pennants mm-hmm. after 1918. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
You know, um, a lot of my research I uh, did through Saber and a bio written by a gentleman by the name of Peter Bjorkman. I hope I got that right. Uh, he wrote yes. a uh, Dolph Luke bio for the Saber Bio Project. And folks, if you want to find out information that you never thought you could find out, Go to saber.org, S-A-B-R dot O-R-G. If you are a fan of baseball, it is a wealth of knowledge on that site. And they are trying to write a bio, literally, of every single person who has ever appeared in a baseball game. And Peter Bjorkman wrote one about Dolph Luke. And in that bio... He talks about John Thorne and Pete Palmer, who created what's called a pitcher's index, and that rates a pitcher's effective performance against the entire league. Going back to 1923, that season is ranked fourth best during the period when Luke played, basically from 1920 to 1940. Now, one season does not make a Hall of Fame career, but and this is a, a big case here, Peter. When you consider what he did in 1923, plus the fact that he won 194 games over 20 years, and a guy like Dazzy Vance, whom I don't hold anything against, he also mm-hmm. won 194 games, but he did it over 16 years. Both of them had career ERAs of 3.24. So why is Dazzy in the Hall of Fame and Dolph isn't? And again, I'm not saying Dolph should be in the Hall, and I'm not taking anything away from Dazzy Vance, but Dolph was pretty darned consistent over a long period of time, as well as that 27-win season. It does present an interesting case, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And not to brag a lot about Sabre, but of course I'm a longtime Sabre member. If we had had, or if the people back then had the same sort of tools, I think they would have appreciated Dolph more. For example, his 1925 season for Cincinnati, you mentioned it before, he went 16 and 18, and back then they cared more about wins and losses. But his ERA, he led the league in ERA. He led the league in shutouts. He got some MVP votes. Mm-hmm. And today, if if you're Jacob DeGrom, that kind of season gets you a big contract extension. Yeah, I mean, how much did the losses affect Luque's credibility? I mean, we are past that today. When you look back at a guy like Jacob DeGrom, who went 10-9 and last year for the Mets, and won the Cy Young Award and turned that into a $137 million contract, many of the voters did not penalize him last year over the fact that the Mets just couldn't score runs for him. And I'm a Mets fan. I'm thrilled for Jacob deGrom. But when you look back, it's not a comparison. I mean, we should be comparing apples to apples, but we're not. So how much do the losses affect the notoriety, the credibility of Adolph Luque and I guess other pitchers of that time? Well, they certainly do because part of the 
part of the issue, if there is an issue about Dolph not being in the Hall of Fame, is at the time he was considered to be a solid pitcher, but I don't think they saw his greatness as much. And if the other thing about the Hall of Fame is that you should be getting credit, and, and many players do get credit, for service to baseball. And in that sense, Dolph's pioneer status should count. And you're also talking about somebody that's in four baseball Hall of Fames already. He's in the Cuban Hall of Fame. He's in the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame. He's in the Mexico Baseball Hall of Fame as a manager. And in the Latino Baseball Hall of Fame. So I think if you want to say he's one of those very important baseball figures, there might be a place for him. But he was a pretty darn good pitcher anyway. And and he was a heck of a manager in Cuba. I mean, he managed, I believe it was just over 22 seasons of winter ball, and he's like the second all-time leading manager as far as wins are concerned in Cuban baseball history. He's got several championships under his belt. Talk about his his uh, ability as a manager and how he was able to put a team together and and win on such a consistent basis. Well, I think as good a pitcher as he was and as positive an impact on his teams he was as a pitcher, I think it's as a manager and as a developer of players where he's one of the greatest of all time. The thing about the Cuban leagues was you could keep some of the players, but basically every year you were looking at a, a new team. And the managers back in those days had a lot more control over who was playing for them than, than they do today. You know, we think of the general managers in, in major U.S. baseball as being the folks that get the talent. But when Dolph was managing, he got the talent. And, of course, he had... He had uh, contacts in Major League Baseball. He knew everybody. He managed and played pretty much year-round. And he was always able to get the players that he needed. And, of course, players would go to him mm-hmm. because they wanted to learn, particularly pitchers. They wanted to learn what he had what he had to teach them. Mm-hmm. And one of those, of course, was a guy who we did a, uh, you know, you and I talked about uh, way back when, Sal Magley. And that work that he did with Sal cannot be overlooked. Talk about how he helped transform the game of Sal Magley. Well, Sal was a, and actually a pretty nice guy, from what everybody said, off the baseball field. And when he first was discovered as a pitcher, he was apparently a pretty nice guy on the baseball field. But when he went into the Mexican leagues, uh, in 46 and 47, Dolph was his manager. And Dolph, of course, had played for the Giants. And it was Dolph who basically showed him how to pitch inside and that it was important to pitch inside mm-hmm. if you want to be successful. Uh, one of Actually, one of my all-time favorite baseball players, Tom Seaver, I remember seeing him quoted as, show me a pitcher that won't pitch inside and I'll show you a loser. <laughs> and and Dob, Sal learned how to pitch inside. So that's how Sal became the barber. Sal the barber. He would 
shave the chins of the batters opposing him with a fastball and then nail him with a curveball. In that sense, he was very much in the Dolph Luque mode. That's what Dolph would do. Were there other pitchers when Dolph was playing in the majors that pitched the same style, close shave? Well, there, it was a little bit more common uh, at that time. Like, Dazzy Vance had an amazing fastball, just to name one. Mm-hmm. And over in the American League, Lefty Grove was very, well, I mean, he was more in the late 20s, early 30s, but Lefty Grove was also well-known for his fastball and his his inclination to throw it in close. And, of course, Grove is in the Hall of Fame and won 300 games. Mm-hmm. So there were other pitchers who did that, but I was thinking, see, what I thought you were going was other pitchers that Dolph Luque helped develop after Sal because Camilo Pasquale. Well, I was going to go there other, as well. Oh, okay, if you were going there, I'll wait on that. Yeah, yeah. So, but go for it. <laughs> we're there already. Who are some okay, of the well, other? Yeah, who are some of the other pitchers that give Dolph credit or Dolph gets credit for helping develop? Well, you had Camilo Pasquale who pitched uh, for the Senators. He was a a great. Latin pitcher, he he developed some Negro players who could only only could play in the Negro leagues too. I, Martin Diego uh, was actually he played several positions, but he also pitched. And I want to say as some of the well, there's a couple of interesting stories about how the way he handled some of his players in the in the Cuban league. Well, talk about that. Give us give us a little history. I mean, we're here talking about Dolph Luque. Let's paint a picture of 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 some of the things that Dolph did. Well, Dolph was a a legend in Cuba. He was because he pitched in the major leagues uh, for many years. The Reds were the favorite team of mo- of many Cubans, and it started a line of players. Not not just because of Dolph. But for many years, the the Reds could go to Cuba and find players. Uh, Then he he got a nickname in Cuba. He was called Papa Montero, which I can't pronounce well because I don't (laughs) pronounce Spanish all that well. But it was based on a... Papa Montero was a a famous salsa dancer known for his tricky dancing and and on-the-edge lifestyle. And Dolph was a, was a, a gambler. Gambling was legal in Cuba at the time. He, like many other players in his, of his day, drank heavily. Uh, but many players did. He certainly pitched for a long time, even drinking and doing the other things. He, he, had, he never really settled down ever in his life, although he did ultimately, he did get married in 1946. Mm-hmm. But he was just he he lived a lifestyle where he made a lot of money and he spent a lot of money and was a a a hero to every Cuban player who wanted to play in the major leagues on the um, in addition to pitchers another Cuban player he developed was Bobby Avila who was the first, I believe was the first Latino batting champion for the 19 19- 54 Indians. Mm-hmm. I would want to just check that, but he certainly was a very successful player in that year that the Indians won 111 games. Mm-hmm. And he, um, he, and he played with everybody. That's the other thing. 
about Dr. Luque because he played in Cuba and so many players came down there. You know, he played against Babe Ruth. He played with Cristobal Tarriente. Tommy Lasorda was on huh. Dolph's team huh. at the, in the 40s. Although, uh, here's, okay, so here's the story. You know Tommy Lasorda is famous for hugging everybody, right? Sure. Okay. Tommy Lasorda said, Luque was the worst human being I have ever known. <laughs> he he told us he he told a story where uh, there was a one of the pitchers on on Luque's team was uh, Terrence McDuffie, who was a pitcher. Uh, uh-huh. Terrence was uh-huh. famous for being a really good pitcher. Um, it was again someone in the Negro leagues who never was able to never was allowed to play in the other major leagues, mm-hmm. but Terrence was also noted known as being very, very good looking. And he liked to party. So one day, uh, Terrence was trying to beg off a of pitching because he didn't feel like it. He had a hangover. And <laughs> according to Lasorda, Luke Kim went into his office, came out with a revolver, Pointed it at McDuffie, and all of a sudden McDuffie's headache was better, and he went out and pitched. <laughs> oh, and Lasorda has said, Lord Lasorda said, said in the, the story I've read about that was, I was there, I saw that. It wasn't like I heard about it from someone else. One can only imagine yeah. if 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 McDuff didn't uh, uh, get up and go pitch, what would have happened. Yeah, I don't know that he actually ever shot anybody. Uh, certainly that never came by. But uh, that's one of those things where having a reputation as somebody with a fiery temper can sometimes be motivating. <laughs> hey, you said that um, he really never settled down, although he did get married in 1946. What was life like off the field for Dolph Luque? Um, or was he baseball 365 days a year? What was he like away from the field? It's interesting because the, re- the research I've done on that doesn't have a lot of off-the-field information. Yeah, I couldn't uh, find had much. A, yeah, it was, he had a daughter, uh, not by somebody that, that he married, uh, but his daughter back in the 1930s, was actually a Olympic-level swimmer for Cuba, mm-hmm. the swam in the Pan American Games. Mm-hmm. He, he did get married to a woman he met when he was managing in the Mexican League, a woman named Yvonne Resek, and I, I hope I pronounced that properly. Um, <laughs> that, was, that was in Puebla, where he was managing. And actually, she survived him. She was able to go uh, to his inauguration in 1985 in the, uh, I want to say, the Mexican Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. But other than being known for his temper and being known for being a, dr- a hard drinker, a partier, a gambler, and someone who spent the money, it, it's, he was not what you would call a family man. Mm-hmm. Or if he was, that evidence has not survived. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about and, the other... I, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I wonder if that had something to do with the fact that he was a Latino's first language was Spanish and might have not been an easy interview for the other for the mm-hmm. sports reporters of the day. Mm-hmm. What about the other players in the majors? 
um, in the Cuban leagues, in the Mexican leagues. Did they get along with him? I mean, here's a guy who you said pointed a gun at someone, uh, lost his cool and uh, went after Bill Cunningham and accidentally took out Casey Stengel. Uh, he, he threw high and tight. Um, did he get along with the other players? Uh, did his teammates get along with him? Uh, were the teammates at the time the only guys to get along with him? And then when he went to a different team, they didn't like him? I mean, what what kind of guy was he with, with the well, other players? I, I'm sure that if you were on Dolph's team and you played hard, he was as nice to you as, as he could be. And that if you weren't working hard... And or and you or you on another team, you didn't like him very much, <laughs> because he was that kind of a competitor. That's why that quote I said I gave you earlier was was a key to him. He never gave up. Uh-huh. Never said, "Oh, it's three and two. I'll just throw it down the middle." Uh-huh. He kept playing. You don't pitch that many years. You don't keep winning that many pennants unless you had a very competitive, fiery heart, which mm-hmm. I think he did. Mm-hmm. And, and really, yeah, I mean, Tommy Lasorda obviously didn't like him, but Sal Magley did. Sal Magley loved him. Sure. And, and so did a lot of the other players who played for him. The stories of his temper, at least as a manager, were for the guys who were trying to beg off competing. Interesting. Peter, in the end, um, well, before we get there, what else should we know about Dolph Luque that, that I was not able to uncover? What else can you share with us about Dolph Luque? One thing I do want to mention is he did win the final game of the 1933 World Series for the Giants. Won it in relief, but that was the uh, Giants World Series right, victory against five, the Senators. It was game five, and, and he came in in relief, I believe. And yeah. and and yeah, he was, I believe, the first Latin American player, perhaps, to win a World Series game. Is that correct? Yes, as far as I could discover, he was. And that again was just a great year. He was forty-two, by the way. Uh, we're moving up into Bartolo Colon territory at this point. <laughs> Although I guess Bartolo pitched longer. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, that, he had an amazing year. 8-2, and two, 269 for an ERA. And he actually, again, got some MVP votes that year on a team that had Bill Terry as the manager and first baseman, Hall of Famer Bill Terry, Hall of Famer Mel Ott. Wow. And Dolph Luque's contribution was enough to get all of the, uh, to get some of the sports writers to notice him. Oh, yeah, and the number one pitcher on that team was a guy named Carl Hubble. So, not, not, not a bad team. No, and he pitched He pitched and played a long time. And the other thing we should remember about Dolph Luque is he was still managing at the time of his death. He, ah. had, a, he had a heart attack at the age of, I want to say, like 66 or something like that. In 1957, and he was still—he had managed the year before, hmm. so he was working up until he died. Hmm. In the end, why should we remember Dolph Luque? What made Dolph Luque such a special player in the history of baseball? And again, I have to ask, why is he not spoken about more often than he is? Well, first of all, he was a pioneer. 
He was a great competitor who pitched at a time when it was tough for pitchers and he was one of the best. He contributed in a very important way to some of the most historic teams. He developed as a manager and a coach, lots of great players who followed him. And he really was the trailblazer for Latino ballplayers in the United States. And I think more of them should know about him. He wasn't Jackie Robinson, but he was important. If there wasn't, if it wasn't for Dolph Luque, maybe you don't have Minnie Minoso. Maybe you don't have Pedro Martinez. Interesting. So that's important. Uh, with the statistical tools we have now, his, his career in the majors looks a lot better than it was. And when you add in the fact that this man was able to pitch year-round and be a winner, mm-hmm. and manage year-round and coach year-round and be a winner, I think you have one of the most remarkable careers. Hmm. And I think if he had had a more prominent role for teams in New York City, we might know about him more. If he'd won 27 games for the 1923 uh, pennant-winning New York Giants instead of the, the number four Cincinnati Reds, I think we would know him a lot better. Interesting. Very interesting. Peter, I want to thank you once again for appearing on Sports Forgotten Heroes. I love talking with you. And again, I'd hope uh, you'd consider coming back. Well, I'll be happy to come back and talk anytime you want. Oh, and if, if I could just say one more thing uh, on the Sabre front. If, you're, if our listeners are interested in learning more about Cuban baseball, uh, Peter Bjarkman edited an anthology called Cuban Baseball Legends. It's actually called Baseball's Alternative Universe, Cuban Baseball Legends, uh, which is mm-hmm. uh, published by Sabre. They, they can go to that website if they're interested. And uh, I also have a biography in it. I wrote a biography of Cookie Rojas for that. Oh, cool. But there are biographies of many, many of the great of baseball's greatest Cuban players. So that would be another place they can go to look. Awesome. Well, Peter, once again, thank you so much. I'll definitely make mention of that on our website, sportsfh.com. Again, thanks for, for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. And... Uh, Look forward to speak with you again. Same here. I had a great time. I always love talking baseball with you. Over the course of his long career, Luque won 154 games for the Reds while losing 152. For the New York Giants, he was 19 and 12. For the Brooklyn Dodgers, he went 21 and 14 over two seasons. And the Braves, the team in which he came up with for the proverbial cup of coffee, he was 0 and 1. His career ERA was 3.24. He tossed 26 shutouts and 206 complete games. His contributions to the game in Cuba and Mexico were honored with inductions into their respective Halls of Fame. And he is a member of the Reds Hall of Fame, despite the fact that so few Reds know anything about him. No doubt, the career of Dolph Luque was splendid. Was it worthy of being enshrined in the Baseball's Hall of Fame in Cooperstown? Well, that's for a lot of others to decide, and on the surface, a 194-179 career record doesn't sound all that impressive, especially considering he won 20 games just once. 
but he was incredibly consistent over his 20 years, and he did win more games than several other Hall of Famers. But wins alone are not the only measurement for a Hall of Fame induction. It's about the entire body of work, and Dolph's entire body of work was simply marvelous. I'd like to thank Peter Gordon for joining us. As he mentioned, check out Sabre.org for more information on the game, and you might even want to join Sabre. That's S-A-B-R dot O-R-G. I'm a member, and it's a really great resource for all fans of the game. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to talk about one of baseball's relocated teams, a team that in 2019 is celebrating its 50th anniversary despite the fact that it only existed for one season, the Seattle Pilots. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.